Uh, I watched a lot of TV. It was one of my favorite shows, um, and I watched it a lot in, in high school and in college, um, but it was called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And um, the way the show worked was you had these, these people um, kind of find a, a family who was very well-deserving of a home renovation, and they would go to this house, they would knock on the door and say, hey, we're going to send you off on vacation for a week, and in that week, we're going to remodel your whole house. And so the family obviously is super excited, it's so excited because they have these professionals and a huge team of people come and, and work on their home. And they would send them to places like Disney World or, or Disneyland, and they would send, send their families off. And so the family, while they're on vacation, um, this team of experts, this group of people would come, and they would figure out, based on the, the, the family's personalities and their needs and, and just their desires, what they should do to renovate this home. And so it's always funny because um, one of the first parts of the, uh, of the, thing, of the show is, is that while they're at Disney World or while they're at this amusement park, they'll have this video of their house being demolished. I mean, just being torn down to, to pieces. And you can kind of see the shock on the, on the family's faces. Like the kids are usually laughing, but the parents are like, oh my gosh, that's our house getting destroyed. Um, and, and, and the producers are, are trying to get that reaction out of the family to see their house being destroyed. And so the family comes back after the vacation, after having all that fun with an all-expense-paid, trip to Disney World, they, they come and there's this big bus in front of their house. And, and the you know, host of the show says, move that bus. And they, they, the bus moves out and all of a sudden, from where their old, worn down, broken down house with all of its, its problems, there's this brand new building, this brand new home. And it's always the reaction of the families that just kind of puts, puts that warm feeling in your heart. And, and that's why I liked watching it, because you, you watch it and you see just the excitement of the family as they, as they go inside and the kids are going to their rooms. They're like, this is my room. They're like, yeah, this is your room. And we themed it just perfectly for you. It's, everything's brand new. And, you know, the, the parents are excited because they go inside to the kitchen and they go inside to, like, and see all the new appliances. They see all the new things. They're like, this is awesome. And it's all given by the TV show. And so again, it's kind of this, this really feel-good show. What I, what I realize, and I, I, I kind of recognize when I talk to people um, these days in regards to Christianity, when, I, when it comes to Jesus, they think it's like this. They think it's, it's this experience that you, you meet Jesus you accept him into your heart. You call him Lord. You call him Savior. And he's going to come into your life. And he's going to remodel everything. That everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be great. That if you accept Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, then all your problems will be fixed. That that old sinful life, it will be gone. It's going to be torn down. It's over. And I realize because some people think like this, because it's even taught like this. What happens a lot is that <laughs> people begin to get mad. They say, Jesus, I accept you into my life and my life is still the same. I, 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 expect, I thought that when I accepted you into my life as, as my Lord and Savior, that everything would become shiny, everything would become new, that all my sinful ways would be gone and behind me because isn't that what it means to accept you as Lord and Savior, that now I'm supposed to be made new into a new creation, but yet it feels so old. It doesn't feel the same. I would see this a lot, especially with youth. 
I, I was a youth pastor before, and, and what happened a lot with youth kids is we would go on these retreats, and on these retreats, um, you know, the speaker would, would give this rousing message of, of how you need to give your life to Jesus, how you need to give your life to God, and he's going to transform everything. And these kids, they would, they would dance, they would sing, they would be like, Jesus, I give you everything. You're, you're my Lord and Savior. I love you, I love you, I love you. And then they would go back home. They would go back to school. They would go back to their old life and they would realize, oh, I guess not that much has changed. Jesus didn't give me a new life. I'm just stuck with the old one. And a lot of times it was the same sins, the same addictions, the same problems that that people fall into. And all of a sudden it doesn't seem like believing in Jesus actually does anything. It almost feels like we've been duped. We've been tricked. That now instead of being free and being able to what I, what I want to do, believing in Jesus didn't give me a new life. It just gave me more obligations, more things I have to do. Now Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I have to go to church. I have to spend time with people that I don't necessarily want to spend time with. I have to go serve people that I don't necessarily want to serve. I have to sing songs that I don't necessarily want to sing. Where was the the new life that was promised. I thought things were supposed to be better. Today, I I really want to talk about this. I really want to talk about this idea because I, I want to first reiterate the promise that your life is supposed to be better. It is supposed to be new and and it is promise that you have been made into a new creation, but I want to shift our focus because I believe it's because of a lack of focus that we become so disappointed. And the way I want us to refocus, what the Lord wants us to refocus, is again going into the Old Testament, going into a prophecy that was made about the Messiah, about the Savior of the world. And again, this is before Jesus was born, But in this prophecy, and it's found in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 12 through 18, I believe we're going to find a lot of what God wants us to hear. So if you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 33, starting from verse 12, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place that is waste, without man or beast, And in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill countries, in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. 
this is a prophecy that's made about the coming Messiah. The way it begins is, is that there's this desolate, this wasteland. That there are no sheep, there are no grazing goats, there are no animals about. And so you look at this land and what God is saying to the nation of Israel, to these people, is, is that I will fix this. I will bring about life in this deserted place, in this run-down dump. I will bring about land. I will bring about life. I will bring about this bounty, this blessing, that there will be shepherds again. And the people that, 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 that Jeremiah is talking to, the, the people that he's talking to, they're seeing just how broken their economy is. They're seeing how broken their country is. And they're hearing this promise that God is going to He's going to build your house again. He's going to build your people again. And he explains the way in which he's going to do this. The way he's going to do this is he's going to send a king in the line of David, a branch out of the line of David. He's going to send someone that's going to sit on his throne, going to sit as a king on the throne, and he is going to bring about this restoration of this desolate wasteland, that the king is going to sit there. And there's a second aspect in verse 17 and 18. It's not just that there's going to be a king sitting on the throne of David forever, but it's also that he's going to be a Levitical priest. And the Levitical priests, the priesthood, are the ones who are offering the sacrifices to atone for sins and to make sure that there is sacrifices and offerings going unto God, that there is different types of offerings. Even that's mentioned in Jeremiah that there's a grain offering. But there's also other offerings and different things that need to be given that this Messiah, that the one that God is going to call righteous, that he's not only going to sit on the throne, but he's the one that's going to be giving the offerings, forever. You see, this is the image that was given to the Israelites. And again, what we talked about last week was missed expectations. They, 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 they saw and they thought that someone was going to come and be this big ruling power that was going to be strong and mighty, that was going to automatically make the land fertile again, that was going to bring about prosperity and bring about good things unto them. But what they got was Jesus. And it totally missed their expectations because Jesus, Jesus didn't do this. Jesus, in their opinion, didn't fulfill this. But what I, what I want to argue is that Jesus perfectly fulfills this. He perfectly fulfills the attributes and characteristics of both the king and the priest. And the beauty of this, and I want to focus on this, this, this dual aspect of Jesus being both the king and the priest. And the, the reason why it's so important for us to understand that he is both, and yet we focus so much on one rather than the other. When I, when I say that he's the king, I mean to say that Jesus is the ruler. He is the one who sits in charge in authority. He's the one who makes the rules, and he's the one who enforces the rules. A king is the one that when they hear that their land, that the people that are living in their kingdom are living in anarchy without any order or rule, they're the ones to say, this is the law. This is what it's supposed, this is how life is supposed to be. This is what's supposed to be done. And when someone breaks the law, the king is the one who says, this is your punishment that you receive for breaking the law. On the other hand, 
the priest, does not have this kind of authority to make laws and, and to enact law. The priest is the one who simply gives atonement, who, who, who presents the offering unto God, unto the leader, and says, take this offering and, and have us be clean. The beauty of Jesus being both of these things falls kind of in a weird understanding of what taxes are. And I know that sounds weird, but if you're a king and you're ruling over a kingdom, if you're a king and you're ruling over a kingdom, the ones who are in your servitude are required a tax. And this kind of just is, is just basic economics in terms of the way that a kingdom works. In order for the king to make sure that there is enough resources to protect his people, there is a tax required. Jesus requires something out of us. He requires a tax out of you. And some of us are already like, oh no, he's going to talk about money. And I'm not talking about money. What, I'm, what I mean to say is, is that in order to be a part of the kingdom of God, in order to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, that there's a tax that we must pay every single day. And if we don't pay this tax, then we have no right to say that we are in his kingdom. But let me say what first this tax is not. And that is based on what the priestly identity of God is. See, what the priestly identity of Christ says is that because he sits in this Levitical priesthood forever and forevermore, offering up these sacrifices unto God, essentially what God is trying to explain through the words of Jeremiah is that Jesus and God are not demanding your grain. They're not demanding your finances. They're not demanding your time, your effort, your energy, because there already is a priest who is offering that unto us, for us, on our behalf, forever and evermore. Jesus' death on the cross is the price that has already been paid, and Jesus is that priest who is offering it unto God for on our behalf. And so we are made clean, wholly clean, without any parts of your work. There is no offering, there is no tax in that kind of capacity that needs to be paid for us to be clean because we have a priest in Jesus. And so what is this tax? Because again, without this tax, there is no kingdom. Without this tax, how could a king even be a king if the, serve, if the, if the ones who are in the kingdom are not contributing unto the king, then how is he a king? So this tax that I speak of is not your good works, it's not your offering, it's not your money, but it's your faith. And I think Jesus made this very clear when he talks about even his ministry and the way it works. It's all, it all hinges not on the good works that we do, but how much we trust and believe in God. And when we begin to understand this is the tax that we need to give God each and every day, then we begin to understand how restoration is brought into our lives. You see, there's a lot of times that church wants to teach you how to improve yourself. I, 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 I do not think that that is my place. If you want to find some good self-help or good tips on how to live your life, go and read other people's ideas and their books and all those different things and please improve yourself. That is not what I believe 
is in the place of church. Because what I believe that I am supposed to teach you, that you are supposed to come into church every single week to learn about, is not how you are supposed to make better offerings unto God, how I can give even more money unto God, how can I use my time, effort, energy more unto God. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's not what I'm trying to teach you. What I'm trying to teach you is this. It's how to trust God more. It's how to believe in him more. How to have a deeper relationship with him. The, the, the trick is this, or the, the real focus I want you to understand is this. Faith and good works go hand in hand, yes. But I, I need you to understand that good works does not produce faith. Good works does not bring you into a closer relationship with God. But it's in this faith to God that will lead you to good works. And it's this faith unto God that we are required to give. We are required, we are told, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you must not, it's not good works. It is you must have faith. And in this faith will be produced, good, good works will be produced. But it's not the other way around. No one enters into the kingdom of God by how good of a person they are. The only way you enter into the kingdom of God is how much you trust in Christ and trust in him. You see, what I, what I mean to say truly is this. A lot of times when people come into church and they come and hear about Jesus, they really look at Jesus like a, like a general contractor. They're like, my life is messed up. I have a lot of broken things. And if I, if I lay my life to Jesus, if I give my life to him, he's going to come in and he's going to remodel everything. He's going to fix everything. Everything's going to be good. Everything's going to be great. That's a really poor analogy of Jesus. Really what Jesus, what Jesus is, instead of being that general contractor, instead of coming in with his tools and, and all the things to fix your life, he comes in with his suitcase and his luggage and he says, I'm here to move in. And so there's a lot of surprise that, that people get. They're like, wait, 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 I thought you were going to fix everything. And Jesus is like, I'm not interested in fixing everything. I'm interested in living with you. And, and, and so what we end up doing is this. We say, okay, well, I guess you're now my roommate. So um, here are the different responsibilities that we have. I'll do the dishes, you do the laundry, and, and, and we'll, we'll cohabitate together, Jesus. And Jesus says this. He says, I'm not interested in being your roommate. Okay, Jesus, I guess you're a part of my family. You're like, you're like my, my dad or you're like my brother. You're like someone I, I, I care about deeply and I love. And, and I, I, I want you to know that I'll do anything for you because you're like family. So, you know, when you are hungry, I'll feed you. When you're, when you're, when you're, when you're tired, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a place to sleep because you're, you're like my brother. You're like my father. You're, you're my bud. You know, you're, you're like that. And he says, I don't want to just be a part of your family. Jesus makes it very clear. He wants to be your king. I think we've lost this. When we ask Jesus to come into our life that is so broken, into our home, that is so broken, it has so many things that, are, that need to be fixed, he doesn't come in as the remodeler. He doesn't come in as a friend. He doesn't come in as a family member. He comes in as king. And the king comes to reside with us. 
The beauty of the system is he doesn't require you to pay tax so that you would pay for the remodeling. He's saying, I've already paid for the remodeling. I've already paid for all the, all, the, all the different furnishings that need to be done, but I don't care so much about the remodeling. I care that I reside here, that this is my kingdom. Church, this is where many of us get hung up on our spiritual growth. This is where a lot of us don't ever go into that next level of our faith is because so many times when Jesus says, I'm here to move in, we said, okay, here's your room, Jesus. You can stay in this part of my life. And Jesus says, what about the rest of the house? And there are times where we grow in our faith and we say, okay, Jesus, you're like a family member, so really you can go anywhere you want. The whole house is, 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 uh, is you're able to walk wherever you want because you're part of my family. And Jesus says, what about my ownership? A lot of us get hung up and say, no, 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 Jesus. Like, I get that you're my family. I get you're really important, but you don't own this house. This house is mine. The importance of viewing Jesus as the king He's saying, yes, Lord, here is the deed to my house. Here is the deed to my life. You do what you please. Because it's rooted not in how much we do, it's rooted in how much we trust. Because if you trust Jesus, if you trust him with everything, if you trust him with your broken down life and you give him the deed to your life, I guarantee you that Jesus being in ownership of your life will bring you restoration. He will take you from that desolate wasteland and bring about life where you thought it was impossible. But I guarantee you another thing, if you cling on to that deed and say, this house is mine, Jesus, there's a room for you and you can stay here as long as you want, but this house is mine, there will never be restoration restoration because he doesn't own it so because God doesn't own the house he doesn't own your life he doesn't have the authority to fix it once you give him the deed he says okay now I can do what I need to do now I can change what I need to change I can bring about life where I need to bring about life because you've given it all to me you see it's not about how much good works we do That's not what fixes your life. Your life isn't fixed because you do all the right things at all the right times. That just keeps your life a little bit more manageable. The way you bring about true restoration is if you say, Jesus, you are king. You are Lord over all. And you are the priest that paid the price for me. So I no longer have to give offering. I don't have to give sacrifice. I don't have to do all these things because you've already done it. So many times I look at our lives and our lives are ours. And so how dare we look at God and say, oh, how could you not love me? How could you not care about me? When we cling so much to what is ours, the way that we experience the Messiah is by recognizing that my life is desolate and needs a Savior. And so, Lord, it is yours. You sit on the throne. You be the one in charge. I think it boils down as simple as inviting Jesus into your house and understanding that he is the king. And so our response to his kingship, our response to him being the sacrifice that paid all of our sins, that fixes everything in our lives, that is the key. There's a story in the Bible that I love very much. It's a story of when Jesus visits Mary and Martha and Mary and Martha are sisters. And, and, and Martha is, is this beautiful person who, who, 
when Jesus comes to her house, she makes sure everything is done. She is the one who is cooking the food. She's the one who's cleaning the plates. She's the one who's making sure Jesus is comfortable. She's the one who's, who's, who's doing every, all the planning and all the different things because the king, the savior of the world is in her home. And she understands it. She believes in Jesus. And so she wants to do everything in her power to make sure that Jesus is comfortable. And it's, it's, it's very beautiful. And I, I want you to understand that if that's your kind of personality, Jesus loves that. That's wonderful. But there's something that Jesus expects because her, her sister, Mary, isn't the one running around trying to get everything done. Her sister, Mary, is just sitting at Jesus' feet and just listening to the words of Jesus. She's so enamored by, by him. She's just so happy that he's in her presence that it doesn't matter if there's, you know, cucumber sandwiches. It doesn't matter if there's tea. It doesn't matter if there's any of those things. She's just happy that Jesus is there. And Jesus commends not Martha, but Mary. What I'm saying is it's not to, to diss on Martha and say, oh, how stupid is she for preparing everything. That's not the point. The lesson that Jesus was trying to teach in that was it's about him. It's about spending time with him. And the longer we spend time with him, the, the more we'll grow to trust him, to have faith in him. And the longer we spend time with him and have more trust in him, the more we'll know that Jesus is the one that if he really wanted to feed, if he really wanted to eat, that he could make the stones turn into bread. That he's the one who can multiply a, a loaf of bread into fish, into a meal for thousands of people. That God is the one who is able to do miracles. And so the more important thing is not all the work. The more important thing is the time spent with him. It's not rocket science. When I talk about restoration, there's so many areas of our life where we wish we had a take back, where we wish we could redo it. We wish we could fix things because we did it wrong the first time. There's so many areas of life where we look and it's, it's dead or it's, or it's broken and it's, it's hurting. And, and it's, it's interesting. I even think, you know, I think the ones that bite the most are, are when you have those close relationships fail, whether it's a, it's a close friend or it's a sibling or if it's a parent or if it's a spouse. When those things fail, those are the times where we de desire the restoration of Christ the most. You know, I, I, I hear when, when married couples go through those rough patches, it's like they would do anything. They would pay any amount to make that their, their marriage restored back to what it once was. And, and what I see so often happen is that people, even Christian people, what they try so hard to do is they try to fix it by their own hands. They try to fix it by their own elbow grease. That I'll work my hardest to make it right. And we have a spirit of Martha. That yes, we believe in Jesus. We know he is, he is the Savior of the world. But there is so much that I need to do to bring about restoration, to bring about this joy, to make everything done. I'm calling and asking for us just to take a step back and recognize that the way we bring about restoration is just by sitting at his feet and saying, you are the Lord. That instead of us sitting on the throne, that we say, Jesus, this is your seat. 
Instead of us thinking that we have to bring the offering, we have to get everything ready. Okay, this is the grain offering. This is the meat offering. This is the burnt offering. Okay, this is the, all the offerings. Okay, so if I have all the offerings, then God will accept me. Then he will look at me. Then he will love me. Because look at all of the offering that I have. That the better attitude is to say, Jesus, you are my priest. That you've already offered the best offering. Restoration is not found when you try to fix it. Restoration is found when we believe and we trust that Jesus has already fixed it. And this is really where faith is so key. When the world looks at us, when those that don't understand the love of Christ look at us, I think many times they they pity us. They, they pity us because they think, oh, you're just ignorant people, believing in God, oh, believing in Jesus. How foolish are you? Don't you understand that the way that you get success in this world is if you do hard work, is if you do the right thing, oh, you're such simple-minded people, believing that God is going to come and save you, that God is going to come and restore you. Oh, they pat you on the head and they say, move along, wait until the world really comes. I encourage you. I encourage you when you feel that the world is persecuting you, even in that way, that you would go home, you would close your door, and in in secret, you would talk to your Savior. You would talk to Jesus. And you would say, Jesus, my life is broken. My life is a desolate wasteland. That there is no success around me. That there is only death and devastation. Lord, would you sit on your throne? Would you be the king of my life? That every room in my house, that everything that I own, every possession I have, that it belongs to you. That it's in that prayer, that it's in that moment that you give Jesus the keys and you say, anything you ask, it is yours. And I guarantee you, God will show up and he will restore you. He will renew you. He will give you reason to shout and sing songs of praise because we know it's already been done through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. This Christmas season, I I want us to really meditate. I want us to really reflect over why we believe what we believe. If, If Jesus is requiring that we have faith if he's requiring that that's the only way into the kingdom of God is by belief that he is Lord and Savior, I think a lot of us need to take a hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves, do I believe in Jesus or do I believe in myself? Do I believe that I'm the one who brings about success in my life or do I believe that he is the one who brings about success in my life? Am I the one who can restore or is he the one who can restore? What I ask is that you at least meditate over that question because I think even for myself there are times where I think I'm the one I'm the one who can restore I'm the one who can bring success I'm the one who can fix things when in fact I'm not able to bring anything but sin so this Christmas season as we celebrate the birth of Christ would we also recognize that he is the king 
Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this congregation. Father, I pray that as we reflect over Jesus, as we reflect over you, that, Lord, that you would be given all of the honor, all of the glory, and all of the praise because we are not able to bring life out of desolation. We are not able to restore what is already dead. Father, only you can resurrect. Only you can bring life. And so, Father, we give you the keys to our life. We give you the keys to our church. We give you the keys to everything, Father, that you are the one in control. And, Father, it is not our good works, but it's our faith that you demand. And through our faith, we will do anything for you. In our faith, we will do whatever it is that you ask. But Father, help us to understand that you are there with us, that you are here residing in our hearts, that you are here residing in our fellowship, in our church. Father, I ask that in this season, as we celebrate with our family and friends, that we would not forget that you are the one to bring blessing, that you are the one that brings life. We love you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray.